Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. This week on the California Report magazine. Lisa Abramson says that even after all she's been through, the helicopters circling her house, the snipers on the roof, and the car ride to jail, she still wants to have a second child. Because in the beginning, when her daughter was born, Lisa was smitten, just like the mom she'd always imagined she would be. She'd look into her baby's round, alert eyes and feel the adrenaline rush through her. I actually was thinking like, I don't get why like other moms are, say they're so tired or this is so hard, like I got this. Lisa felt like she barely needed sleep. She had so much energy. She was so excited. Now I can look back and say, maybe that was a warning sign. I'm Sasha Koka, and this week we're devoting our whole show to the story of a woman from Silicon Valley who wanted to be the perfect mom. A woman who was ready to be the perfect mom. She'd been a successful marketing executive and a successful entrepreneur. But success in motherhood seemed lost when the snipers came to take her away. The California Report's April Domboski has our story. That first week after her baby was born, the world was nothing but love. Even when Lisa got time to sleep, she still couldn't. And I remember thinking, I'm so tired, but I just can't rest. Then the baby started losing weight. The pediatrician said Lisa should start feeding her every two hours. (laughs) That meant breastfeed and then pump and then feed her the pumped milk and then, you know, clean the pumping parts, which is always something no one thinks about but takes about 20 minutes. Breastfeed, pump, and basically through that every two-hour feeding cycle, I had 10 minutes of downtime. Breastfeed, pump. Lisa started to feel like she couldn't keep up. She felt overwhelmed and guilty really guilty. Like it weighed on me as like, I failed as a mom. Like I can't feed my child. Lisa became even more determined. Breastfeed. I was like needed to feed her. That was the most important thing. Breastfeed. And my well-being didn't matter. Pump. She was barely sleeping. Even when she could get a release from breastfeeding purgatory, she couldn't relax. As she got more and more exhausted, she started to get confused. Even as having a conversation with someone, Like, their voices were distorted. And it was really hard for me to understand um, what what they were saying. She decided she'd go to a spin class, something she loved and had done up until the baby was born. That was not a good idea (laughs) because the noises and the intense volume of the spin class was really alarming to me. And it felt like almost like the walls were talking to me. Ten minutes into the class, Lisa was out of there. I just said to my husband, like, probably 100, 200 times that day, am I crazy? Am I crazy? 
Am I crazy? But then, about a month after the birth, her clarity came back. It was like she woke up from a dream. It rained every day for the next week. And the day the sun came out, she noticed police helicopters circling over the apartment. She heard them land on the top of the building. You know, there were snipers on the roof, there were spy cams in our bedroom, and everyone was watching me, and my cell phone was, like, giving me weird messages. Lisa waited for the police to come in and take her. But the next morning, she woke up in her own bed. The cops had arrested the nanny instead. This was wrong. The nanny shouldn't be punished for her crime. Lisa told her husband it wasn't fair. She was going to put an end to all this. She was going to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. And that's when her husband told her he was going to drive her to the police station himself. I was like, oh, okay, he's taking me in, and I guess I'm getting arrested. I remember my mom cooked me eggs, and was like, you should eat these, like, before you go. And I was like, oh, this, she's, like, giving me my final meal before I, like, go to jail. <laughs> That's probably one of the worst days of my life, bringing my wife to the hospital and then eventually checking her into an inpatient unit um, was really, really challenging. This is David Abramson. He explains there was no crime, the nanny wasn't arrested, and Lisa's destination that day was not jail, but rather the general psychiatric ward of California Pacific Medical Center. Though the hospital didn't feel far off from where Lisa believed she was going. You kind of have to wait for the door to be unlocked, you know, the buzzer and there's security. And it felt almost like, you know, bringing Lisa to jail, even though she didn't do anything. The other patients were there for drug overdoses or alcohol withdrawal. People were screaming. One patient thought he was a dog crawling around on all fours, barking. It didn't seem like the right place for a new mom. That was probably the most heart-wrenching thing, was having to like leave her that night with the hospital staff. And she, you could see in her eyes and her body language that she was panicked all of a sudden that we were leaving. Probably for the first five days, I just didn't speak to anyone. And I don't know if, like, I couldn't speak or I wasn't speaking, but I was terrified enough of the environment that I decided, like, I wasn't going to answer anyone's questions. I wasn't going to talk to anyone. Her husband tried to reassure her. He told her the baby was safe at home with Lisa's mother. He told her she was here to get help. But Lisa still thought the people in white coats were all part of some conspiracy. Because I tried to get out to, like, leave, and I was locked in, so can't leave. So I was like, maybe I am in like a jail, but it looks like a hospital. Or they're saying it's a hospital, but it's really a jail. Lisa doesn't remember any doctors or nurses telling her why she was there or what was going on. I just thought I was there because I did something wrong. No one was explaining to me. And they were just like, take these medications, you know, and they were pissed at me because I wasn't cooperating and going to any of the groups or talking to anyone. So, so no one there told you? No. No one told me what my diagnosis was, why I was there. It wasn't until Lisa had been in the hospital more than a week that she remembers her husband telling her why she was there. He brought her a printout from the Internet on postpartum psychosis. That was the first time where I was like, oh, like, he's on my side. Like, even though he brought me here, like, he, he made up this disease, like, just to make me feel better. Like, that was so sweet. The paper said it was hormones going wild plus sleep deprivation that can trigger confusion and paranoia. Lisa figured it took her husband hours to Photoshop all this. I really was just like, no, like I've heard of postpartum depression now. Like I've never heard that like there's postpartum crazy. I was like, mm-mm. 
Postpartum psychosis is real. It's rare, but experts believe more women are affected than previously thought, and more of them are ending up dead. Suicide. There are a handful of doctors and researchers trying to figure out why. They're doctor detectives, really. States have never kept good data on this, so each suicide is like a mystery, and it takes a team of medical investigators to piece it together. They start with death certificates and coroner reports, then work backward. They track down hospital records to figure out when the woman gave birth. Then they study medical charts for clues, signs of mental illness that the original doctors didn't catch. California just finished its first big study like this. It's not published yet. It's tied up in state politics at the moment. But I got a preview of the data. 99 new moms died by suicide over a 10-year period. And the doctor detectives determined that of those 99 suicides, 98 were preventable. 98 out of 99 women might not have died if the healthcare system in California had done a better job taking care of them. If they had screened better, screening, diagnosed better, assessment of symptoms, treated better. Treatment. The work that we do here is less than 10% of what needs to be done. Psychiatrist Nirmaljeet Dami is one of the doctor detectives, though she's not the one who told me what was in the report. She often treats women in crisis, cleaning up what OBGYNs miss. Gaps in the care. She says a lot of docs don't know the early signs of postpartum psychosis. Waxing and weaning. They don't know that the symptoms come and go. So a lot of times the patient will present very clearly and then at other times will present with acute confusion and disorganization. Like Lisa, of sound mind in one moment. Very clearly. Then believing the walls are talking to her in the next. Acute confusion. And this is a symptom that um, clinicians who are not trained in this field can easily miss because when they see the patient in their office with the family, they can think that the patient is normal and, and you know is probably suffering from sleep deprivation and discharge them home. This is how women die. In the U.S., mental health problems are one of the leading causes of death among new moms. It's number seven on the list. It's actually worse for white women. For white moms, suicide is number four on the list. Dr. Dami says even when women do get into care, it's often inadequate or inappropriate. Doctors prescribe the wrong medications. Insurance companies push patients out of psych units before they're ready. And the psych units themselves? In general, most psychiatry wards do not have staff that are trained in assessing these illnesses. Like, they really didn't have experience with moms, especially moms with, you know, such young babies coming in. Take Lisa Abramson's inpatient experience. When Lisa first arrived at the psych ward, her husband told the resident who admitted her that he thought Lisa had postpartum psychosis. The resident said, postpartum what? He promised he'd study up on it. They weren't equipped for me by any means. Several days after Lisa was checked into the psych hospital, her breasts were killing her. Because I stopped breastfeeding instantly. I mean, they just weren't equipped for a new mom and the fact that like, of course, yeah, if you stop breastfeeding, you're going to have a lot of pain and engorgement. And no one had thought about that. No. no, not at all. Her husband had to negotiate to bring in Lisa's breast pump from home. But she says the only room with an electrical outlet had padded walls and looked like a solitary confinement chamber from a horror movie. And that was where like they sent me to go pump, you know, and under supervision from doctors because they were worried. God knows what I would do with the breast pump, which <laughs> the breast pump is a torture device already. But the worst thing of all was not being allowed to see her baby. 
The inpatient unit had a strict policy, no infants on the ward. The hospital says this is intended as a safety measure for everybody. Her family argued with the staff. They said, you know, she needs, like, she's a new mom and, like, she needs to see her baby. Like, that's keeping this bond going is, like, really, it's important. So, yeah, that was a hard part, just not getting to see her. Um. About five days into her time there, Lisa's family was able to negotiate short visits with her daughter. You know, for, like, an hour or something. Supervised by a person who kept looking at his watch. Was tough. Lisa's family was so unhappy with her care at the hospital, her husband practically broke her out of there. They found Dr. Dami and asked her to take over Lisa's treatment. Dr. Dami says separating a mother from her newborn actually makes it harder for the mom to recover. A lot of times, symptoms of postpartum depression and psychosis involve the mother feeling that she's like a bad mom. I failed as a mom. She doesn't provide enough care for her baby. I can't feed my child. It it is a difficult situation for the mother to be in when she has so many negative thoughts and ruminations about herself and her ability to be a good mom. Under Dr. Dami's care, Lisa started to reclaim her grip on reality. But she didn't know how long it would be before she'd start to feel better. She wondered if she'd ever feel like herself again. You're listening to a special edition of the California Report magazine. This week, reporter April Dimboski is telling us the story of what happens when new moms have to go to the psych ward. They're usually not allowed to breastfeed or see their babies. Sometimes hospital staff don't even know the best treatments. And that way of handling the problem, it's pretty unique to the U.S. Here's April again. There's plenty of research dating back to the 1940s on the ideal protocols for inpatient treatment of postpartum mental illness. The gold standard is to admit the mother and the baby into the hospital together on a specialized mother-baby unit. They're treated as a pair. Part of the mom's therapy is getting guidance on how to read the baby's cues and how to meet the baby's needs as well as her own. At night, the baby sleeps in a supervised nursery so mom can get uninterrupted sleep. In the UK, there are 21 of these mother-baby units. In France, there are 15. They're in Belgium, New Zealand. There's one in India. In the U.S., there are zero. The closest thing there is to a mother-baby unit in the U.S., is 3,000 miles from where Lisa lives, the hospital at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. For neuroscience, perinatal unit, how can I help you? This is a psychiatric unit that is reserved exclusively for pregnant women and new moms. They accept all kinds of commercial insurance and Medicaid, so any woman, wealthy or low income, can get treated here. Dear mamas, I know you're scared, and I don't know how to say When women first arrive, nurse Anna Soloway shows them the Dear Mom book. Dear mamas, dear wonderful, beautiful mother, dear moms or mom-to-be, this place has saved my life and it will save yours. You may think that you're the only crazy girl in the world like this, but I promise you you're not alone. But I promise you, but I promise you you're not alone. Dear mom, you are beyond brave and strong for coming here. You are strong and your family deserves you. You are a wonderful mother. Almost all of the doctors here are women. The psychiatrist who runs the unit is Dr. Mary Kimmel. She wears a denim jacket and black suede ankle boots. And whenever a patient asks if she's a mom too, she says yes, she has two kids. 
She says everything here is tailored to the specific needs of new moms. There is a need for them to see other moms going through what they're going through. Women get special help with breastfeeding. There's a lactation consultant, and every room has a hospital-grade breast pump. We have a refrigerator that's dedicated solely for moms to put milk after they've pumped. But the most distinctive feature about the program is the visitor policy. Most afternoons, the unit is bustling with husbands and kids. Babies can come to the unit, and we really encourage that. We encourage, actually, older kids to also come to the unit. The staff have tried to make it homey here, but there are two walls of glass separating the day room from the nurse's station. So during visiting hours, it's like the toddler scurrying around or in a silent film, coloring, playing with toys, playing with each other. Women cradle their newborns, rocking them, singing them lullabies. The babies are not allowed to stay overnight, though. There's no nursery here, like the units in Europe. And the main reason for that is the insurance companies. Kimmel says no insurer in the U.S. would ever pay for a healthy baby to be admitted to the hospital. That baby doesn't have a distinct need to be admitted, and so it's not possible to bill for that baby being in the hospital. Dr. Kimmel says without that, the hospital can't afford to run a nursery. The days are very structured, with a range of treatments, all tailored specifically to pregnant women and new moms. There's one-on-one therapy and lots of group classes, parenting and time management lessons, where women practice asking their partner for help. And a favorite among the moms, relaxation class. Get yourself as comfortable as you can. Let your body relax. Recreational therapist Amber Koo teaches stress management and coping strategies. Let your breathing start to slow without forcing your breath. She puts on a special light machine that projects little stars onto the ceiling. That gives women a place to focus their mind away from the negative thoughts coursing through their heads. Gently letting out your breath. For Alice Sarti, the mom's unit at UNC was the first place that gave her hope as a new mom. After she had her son, she became engulfed by mania. She had dealt with depression many times before, but never this. Every minute, I had to fill with a task, researching daycares, doing and redoing my budget. She became an exaggerated version of herself. Super mom. You know, I've just, I'm not going to line up three bottles. I'm going to line up 17 bottles. She's a business analyst and loves getting things done. She loved how productive she was. But then things started to spiral. There was a definite snap that I started yelling about things that didn't make any sense. They meant sense to me. If you've ever seen the TV show Homeland, it's like when bipolar CIA agent Carrie Matheson sets up a situation room. She covers the walls with news articles and photos of the terrorists she's chasing. She crisscrosses yellow string in all directions to illustrate the connection she sees. It was like that in Alice's mind. To her family, though, it was just an incoherent rage. They called the police, and they took Alice to the nearest hospital that had an available bed. In this case, not the mom's unit at UNC, a general psych ward. Alice saw people so drugged they couldn't walk or talk. She refused to take any meds, and that made her unpopular with the staff. I did have a social worker tell me I was going to lose my child if I didn't pull it together, quote-unquote. During her three-week stay, she saw her son once for 20 minutes. I was not able to touch him on any level. He was in his car seat, and I reached for him, and I was yelled at. What was that like to then 
come back to him after really not seeing him for weeks. It felt like a burden. It felt like, how am I ever going to do this? And and I held him and I bathed him and I, you know, I did all the things, but the connection was not there. I lost time with my son. I'm never gonna get that time back. Alice was sent home from that hospital, even though she wasn't feeling any better. She eventually ended up at the mom psych unit at UNC Chapel Hill. There, everyone finally seemed to understand what she was going through, the pressure she was feeling, the guilt. She saw her son regularly, and staff helped her start to reestablish her bond with him. It changed, you know, the trajectory of my life and my son's life. But even at this seemingly perfect place, things go wrong. When Alice was discharged, her mania cleared. But then she slipped into the deepest, darkest depression she had ever known. That period was like, this is my life now. You know, for me not to be manic, I have to be this. I checked myself in the last time because I was going to kill myself imminently. Dr. Kimmel says with Alice and other patients, they're under so much pressure to get moms home quickly, sometimes they overshoot on the medications. Some of that pressure comes from the moms themselves who want to be with their kids. But it also comes from the insurance companies. UNC's Moms Unit pays the bills like other hospitals. They take insurance to cover the cost of care. But the longer a patient stays, the more an insurer has to pay. And that's not good for their bottom line. Kimmel and other doctors say as soon as a patient comes off suicide watch, insurers start asking when she can go home. Our average length of stay runs from about one week to two weeks. In Europe? About 40 to 50 days is the average length of stay there. That means doctors in the U.S. start patients on new drugs, but don't have time to see if they work. And that means that patients like Alice can end up hospitalized four times before they get better. Alice says mental hospitals in the U.S. are just warehousing people. Only the mom's unit felt like a place of healing. And despite the limitations of the system, it was the only thing that worked for her. It's a different kind of place, and it's the type, frankly, it's the type of mental health care that everyone should have access to, not just mothers. And that's what mental health care in this country should look like, and it doesn't come close. Right now, UNC is the only hospital in the country that has a designated psych unit just for pregnant women and new moms. A hospital in New York has a women's-only unit. An El Camino hospital in Mountain View, where Dr. Dami practices, will soon start construction on a women's-only psych unit with a special focus on new moms. It's slated to open in 2019. Ready? Yeah. Go. Good job. Back in Silicon Valley, two years after she gave birth, Lisa Abramson is playing catch with her daughter, Lucy. One, two, three. Lisa feels like she's back to her normal self, but she's been thinking a lot about her experience with postpartum psychosis. Lisa is pregnant again. That was the most courageous moment of my life, was like, be like, all right, without knowing anything of how this is going to really work out, let's go, let's try it again. She's terrified, though. The psychosis will come back. It might still happen again. Like there's kind of, they said there's about 50% chance. <laughs> so you're like, okay, um, 
I can try to set up a more optimal situation, but you also just don't know and it's out of your control, which is it's hard. The number one thing she wants to avoid is going back to the hospital. The hospitalization was probably the most traumatic of the whole experience. Her plan this time around is to make sure she's getting enough sleep. She's going to have a therapist and psychiatrist lined up if she needs medication. And if she can't stand the tyranny of the breastfeeding schedule, she's going to let it go. More than anything else, she's giving herself permission to put herself first. Part of the inspiration for this is Oprah. Lisa's been listening to the podcast, Making Oprah, chronicling the history of the daytime talk show. We were doing a show about where you are on your list. She had a life coach on there that said, you know, put a list of the people and things that are that you need to take care of. And, and then we asked, where are you on that list? Most of the women said, I wasn't on the list at all. And if they were, they were last. That was just the conditioning that we had as women people. And then the coach said, okay, I want you to put you at the top of that list. And the crowd booed. Boo, booing, boo. They booed her off the stage. Someone said, where'd you get this woman? That was 1992. Lisa says today in Silicon Valley, it doesn't feel like much has changed. This is ground zero for women striving to have it all. High-stress career running a tech company and two perfect kids. Women here think the overachiever culture is one reason postpartum depression and anxiety rates are higher in California compared to the rest of the country. Lisa says she still feels intense pressure to be the perfect mom. We've got so many messages of just self-sacrifice. Do anything for your kids. Drop everything. And that's what it means to be a good mom. And for me, that's not what made me a good mom. That's what made me fall apart. (laughs) So trying to, yeah, put myself first guilt-free and know that that makes me a better mom. Lisa feels so strongly about this, she's writing a book about it. It's called The Wise Mama Guide to Maternity Leave. And it's all about convincing Silicon Valley go-getters how to go easy on themselves when they have a baby. Just this new mindset of like going from achieving and doing to kind of being and lowering your expectations. She says throw out those ideas of fitting into your skinny jeans in a few weeks, pushing a cute stroller all put together. Shift your goals from giving a presentation to 100 people to changing 15 diapers in a day. At Trader Joe's, they say, do you want help out to your car? Just like say yes and practice feeling uncomfortable getting other people to really help you. Some Silicon Valley companies have asked Lisa to come talk to their female employees about how to not be so type A about their maternity leave. She's teaching online classes, too. They're like, oh, I thought I could still like get some stuff done or I could tackle a project that I've been forgetting about during maternity leave. And I'm like, no, no. It's an interesting message from a woman who is herself cranking out a book while she's pregnant. But then again, that's the point. Finish everything well before the baby comes. Go, baby, go, baby! (laughs) Lisa loves being a mom. Lucy is almost five now. Her second daughter, Vivian, is a year and a half. Can you walk to your sister? Talk to me. The postpartum psychosis did not come again. With all the precautions Lisa took to protect her sleep, to ask for help, to put herself first, she warded off the helicopters and the snipers. 
And that's the California Report magazine. Thanks to reporter April Demboski for bringing us that story. You can check out other stories in our series on maternal health at californiareport.org. Our technical producer is Seal Muller with additional engineering from Rob Spate. Our director is Susie Racho. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor. Our intern is Marisol Medina Cadena. And our editorial team includes Sandia Dirks, Julia McAvoy, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems and the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. Hey QED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more, all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.